May all beings everywhere with whom we are inseparably interconnected and who want and need <clears throat> the same as we do. May all be awakened, liberated, healed, fulfilled, and free. May there be peace and harmony in this world and throughout all possible realms of existence and an end to war and violence, injustice, poverty, and oppression. Delusion, confusion, greed, and hatred, pride, and jealousy, ignorance. And may we all together complete the spiritual journey. Homage to the Buddhist within. May you all realize it and be benefited by it. So we've been chanting and praying what we call in Tibetan the, mantra, uh, the medication meditation of love and compassion, joy and equanimity equal to all, Chenrezig's meditation, Avalokiteshvar's meditation, the Dalai Kuan Yin's meditation, the Dalai Lama's meditation, with the mantra of Mani Padme Hum, the mantra of love and compassion, and so on. Practicing the four boundless, or the four divine abodes, the four Brahma Viharas in the original language of the Buddhism, the four divine heartitudes, I call it, the four states of grace, loving kindness, metta, compassion, karuna, sympathetic joy or rejoicing, mudita, and upeksha, equal to all, or equanimity, impartiality. In fact, in the Tibetan tradition, we usually start first with equanimity, upeksha. In upeka in Pali, upeksha in Sanskrit, we don't have to go into politics. Great equanimity by any other name smells as sweet. We begin with equanimity because how can we talk really about Buddha-like loving, loving kindness if it's partial? How can we talk about Buddha-like compassion if it's not equal to all? If we're only compassionate or kind, well-wishing, benevolent to those who are nice to us, to those who stroke us or our ego. What about our enemies, our critics, and so forth? So we begin with Upeka, Upeksha, in the traditional scriptures and in the way that it's probably taught here in the Theravadan tradition that Charlotte Catherine is lineage holder of, first loving kindness. And loving kindness seems to have swept the land. I mean, unfortunately, it hasn't swept the land. But Metta is very well known today. That we can say. Metta, loving kindness, if you know about Buddhism. If you know about yoga, you know namaste. If you know about Buddhism, you know metta. Metta in Pali, Maitri in Sanskrit. I'll get back to that in a minute. But there's more to life. There's more to Buddhist life. There's more to Vipassana inside meditation tradition, Theravada tradition, the way of the elders, Theravada. There's more to it than metta. There's loving kindness, compassion, joy or rejoicing in the benefits and virtues of others, and Impartiality or equanimity equal to all detachment. That's very important to mention. I want to talk tonight about befriending ourselves, befriending the world, and compassion and action. And we'll get on to question period soon, so we can explore more together directly in your interest. But metta, maitri, Maitri in Sanskrit, as in Maitreya, the Buddha to come, if you're familiar with Buddhist cosmology, the fifth Buddha is Maitreya, who's supposed to be coming. 
Um, I think he's coming February 14th. I don't know. His name means love, Maitri. Love or friendliness in Tibet. Metta, loving kindness in Pali. Another part of metta or Maitri is friendliness, not just well-wishing. The essence of loving kindness is usually taught to be well-wishing, benevolence. Because I was coming to teach here, to teach the Sangha of the eminent and august and scholarly and awesome Charlotte Catherine Tromovich, Tromovichskaya. I looked up what is metta. I googled metta. <laughs> you remember what Buddha said, Google and you shall find. <laughs> The perfection of loving kindness is the wish to provide for the welfare and happiness of the world, accomplished, accompanied by compassion and skillful means. Literally, it means benevolence. In other words, well-wishing. Wishing well for others is loving kindness. Not just being kind. Wishing well for others and acting on it is loving kindness. Compassion is more empathy, feeling what they feel and being moved to help. The quivering heart that sort of vibrates in tune with them, like when your children hurt, you hurt. So there's a lot we can say about that. Um, just for the sake of non-sectarianism, the founder of the Jain religion, Mahavira, who was like a Buddha in his time in India, very, very, very non-violent, more non-violent than Buddhists even, brush sweeping away the bugs from the path in monsoon India, it's a full-time job, and so forth walking with a brush like this and wearing a white surgical mask. I don't know where he got them in bulk in those days, probably from Amazon. So he wouldn't breathe in the bugs. You see, very, 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 non did I say very? Nonviolent. Said, nonviolence and kindness to living beings is kindness to oneself. Oh, now you're getting interested, huh? You'll get something out of this. Nonviolence and kindness to oneself, uh, to living beings is kindness to oneself. Through kindness and nonviolence, non-harming living beings, one's own welfare is established and saved from various kinds of resultant sufferings now and in the future life. I think that's very important to recognize the mutuality or reciprocity of this. Karma, interconnectedness, interdependence, praticha, samudpada, interdependent arising, as Charlotte translates it, which I believe she's going to be teaching in a weekend soon. This is very important. And befriending ourselves is an important part of this. To be nice to others is to be nice to ourselves. We can explain this in many ways. Wherever I go, I meet myself, as a saint once said. I don't want to get into the theology of all that, but you get the point. You know, maybe you get divorced and you have a new relationship and you say, the same things are happening. Why, you know, why is this? It's like, who brought this can of worms? except oneself, that's called karma. So it's very important to be kind to ourselves through being kind to others and vice versa. Being kind to others by being kind to ourselves. Just like if you want to be a good parent, you better take care of yourself so you're there for the children. Does that make sense? So you're there now, present, not intoxicated, not absent, not forgetful. And so you're there later, not dead, not absent, not in prison not disassociated, you know, not there, bad, there, good, here. Thus we practice mindfulness instead of mindless living. 
mindfulness. And it's a beautiful way to go. It's really the only way to go. Mindfulness, as you know, is the main ingredient in Buddha's recipe for happiness, called the seven factors of enlightenment, or the seven ingredients for awakening. Mindfulness is the pivotal one. Some people teach it as number one on the list of seven ingredients. Some is number four, because it's the fulcrum, it's the pivot. We hear a lot about mindfulness today. You're not going to hear about it much tonight because I'm talking about something else. But in general, mindfulness is very important. It's, attention is the essence of Buddha Dharma, of awakefulness. Not ritual, not cosmology, not um, gender bias, not philosophy. Uh, what else is there in the religious schemes? Not history and lineage, not a color of robes or um, hairstyle. But attention, awareness is the essence. Awareness, attention, concentration, insight, developing wisdom is the essence of Buddha Dharma, of enlightening wisdom tradition, of Sudharma, the sublime liberated Dharma. That's very important. Alpha and, the Alpha and Omega of liberating Dharma, enlightening Dharma is awareness. Attention and how we intentionally use it. So mindfulness is very important today. And if we could bring it to bear, on everything we do, that would be being kind to ourselves and the world, befriending ourselves and the world by living mindfully, rather mindlessly. What happens when you drive mindlessly? Accidents. How did that happen? You know, you were multitasking, you're falling asleep at the wheel, or just more over time you didn't take care of your equipment, your car or whatever. You have an accident, although there's no such thing as accidents. Everything has causes. So mindfulness is very, very important. And we could extend this to not just mindfulness of breath, not just mindfulness of the four foundations of mindfulness, which you would know since you're here and studying in the original Buddhist teachings. Your basic Buddha is a mindfulness of body and feelings and sensations and mental phenomena and so on. Not just the four foundations of mindfulness, but also mindful driving, mindful emailing, mindful talking, mindful eating, and so forth. Relational mindfulness, how about that? Being a better listener, relational mindfulness, being attentive to other, empathy, connection. As Buddhists, or whatever we are, meditators, practicing mindfulness of breathing, do we even know there are other people in this world? Oh, there are other people, not just the three Jews, me, myself, and I. Who knew? Mohammed, another bodhisattva, said, just for our non-sectarian purposes, you know, just so we don't get to thinking Buddhism is the only way, and you know, like everybody has their only way. Do not consider any act of kindness insignificant. Even meeting your brother with a cheerful face is an act of kindness. That's Mohammed, friends. We don't hear that very much, do we, from the pulpits today when we hear about Islam and what they think. So friendliness is an important part of Maitri, of metta, of loving kindness, of benevolence, of well-wishing for others. The Buddhist pioneer Lama Trugim Trungpa, if you haven't read his books, I recommend them. Trugim Trungpa Rinpoche, spiritual, cutting through spiritual materialism. Shambhala, the way of the peaceful warrior, and two dozen books. A great Lama who lived in America in his last 15 years of life, gone now. He called it cheerfulness. 
it's not too bad for a combination of metta and mudita and upekka. Cheerfulness in the face of all, equal to all. One taste. Equanimity, detachment. Not just indifference, but detachment. Like the grandparents who are more detached from the kids than the parents, yet still love them intensely. Eyes like ice, heart of fire, as the Zen master said. Not just frozen, keeping a stiff upper lip, not feeling anything. No, that's numbing out. That's not equanimity. So, befriending ourselves, being very, always cultivate an open mind, an up, a positive mind, as it says in the Mahayana attitude transformation, Lojung teachings, so called mind training, attitude transformation, spiritual refinement teachings from Tibet. 59 great mind training slogans, Lojung slogans, attitude transformation from Atisha, the Indian master. Always maintain a joyful mind. That doesn't mean always smiling. It means always maintain a positive attitude, an upbeat attitude. Everything is possible. Everything is workable. There's no stuckness. We may be heavily karmically conditioned. That's the bad news, but that is just conditioning is the good news. Conditioning can be reconditioned and deconditioned. That's Dharma practice. Reconditioning and deconditioning. First replacing bad habits with good habits, unwholesome with wholesome habits of body, mind, speech, and so on, intention. And then freeing ourselves, excuse me, completely, eventually, from habit, from karma itself, being free of past and future in the atemporable now. If we really want to talk about befriending ourselves and befriending others, I think rather than talk about a lot of things that you will hear, even from metta teachers, sometimes I think we're teaching Judeo-Christianity and theism in the name of Buddhism, talking about only values and virtues that are outward and not about inward and deeper levels of it. Let me just mention a kind of, um, I mean, this is just my own thought here, but just for interest's sake. Befriending ourselves, befriending the world. What are ourselves and what are our world? If we really pay attention, if we really do an experiment like Buddha did in the laboratory of our own experience. I'm sure some of you are scientists. I can see in your auras, uh, some of you. In fact, there I see a physical geologist aura. <laughs> Actually, I met her at dinner. But, just joking. Buddha, Buddha's teaching of the path of enlightenment, which is the whole teaching, the Eightfold Path and all, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, is kind of scientific in its way. Buddha said, if you reproduce this experiment, you can replicate the results in yourself. And millions have. It's not just only one begotten son of Buddha. Although he did have a son named Rahula, who became enlightened too, in case you don't know the history. But it's very scientific in that way. And I find that helpful because we can confirm it for ourselves. So if we replicate the experiment, we too can get the same results of nirvanic peace and bliss and freedom and realize the deathless and undying, unconditioned dharmakaya or whatever you want to call it. Not impersonal, not personal, transpersonal, beyond ourselves, transcendent over any of us, yet imminent in each of us. What we call in the, some traditions the Buddha nature. What's called in the Theravada Sutra is the unconditioned. Uh, true nature, the nature of everything. We can realize that. 
So if we practice in the present moment, befriending ourselves, befriending the world, as I was introducing, we do this experiment. If we really hone our concentration and get some stability of mind and attention in the present moment on a direct naked experience of what the hell's going on here? What's up? What's up, Das? What's up? What's this? What do we find? What can we say? Of course, it's inexpressible, but just to put some words on it, there's a few feelings and cessations, physical sensations, there's a few um, thoughts and memories, you know, there's a, some body, some arisings in the body-mind continuum. Sensations and perceptions and feelings and thoughts and so on. Other than that, it's all conceptual imputation overlaid on the dots, making our own constellation. Oh, it's a nice night here. Well, somebody else might be saying, oh, what a nightmare. I have a kidney stone. When's this nut going to shut up and let me go home? It's so subjective. But if we really look in the now, what is happening? How do we befriend ourselves in the world? Loving kindness, appreciation. You know, mindfulness is also an openness. It's not just being there now, being here now. It's also an appreciation and openness, non-judgmental openness to whatever arises. That's a part of definition, mindfulness. Friendliness, as I'm saying. Befriending our experience, every moment, whatever comes up. Now let me tell you what life is according to me and Martin Buber. Martin Buber said all of life is about encounter. Some people translate it as relationship, but then everybody thinks about their sweetie or their ex. Encounter, the encounter of I and now, not I and it. Not just me and her, what can I get from her, but thou. The mirror that is a, in which you see everything as a perfection reflection including yourself. Like when you really realize emptiness, you see your, you see the fullness of it. When you look into yourself, you might see your Buddha nature, you see your, your best self, not just your worst self, you might be surprised. So when we're meditating, so-called meditating, if you really pay attention, how you encounter every thought, feeling, perception, moment, that is life. That's my theory that I'm propounding here very dogmatically. What is life? It is that moment of encounter that Martin Buber talked about, that I'm talking about, that Buddhist teachers are not talking enough about. Mindfulness of breathing, that's fine. Of course, that's training. And that's good, that's training wheels. But it's the mindfulness that in the moment, it's nowness awareness that's the active ingredient that is the Buddha within. As my Dzogchen master, Dujim has said, nowness awareness. How we encounter every moment, not just the moment as a big tapestry, yes, but each part of that tapestry, what, how we experience each arising in the field of consciousness, or whatever you want to call it, in the body-mind continuum, this moment, only moment, that's life. And the rest is conceptual imputation based on our conditioning and subjectivity. Good day, bad day. It's hot in here, it's cold in here. Some people I can see come from equatorial Ecuador, and they're wearing a lot of coats. It's freezing for them in here. And other people, in the back there, I see some half-naked um, hula dancers. They think it's really um, hot in here. I don't know what I'm talking about, but everything is subjective, is my point. It's so subjective. 
You think this is a wonderful meditation hall? If my mother came in, she would say, Jeffrey, what are you doing in a church? <laughs> or, why don't you have couches? Those look uncomfortable, those chairs. They're so subjective. And she'd be right from her point of view. Because she wants to sit on the couch and put her arm around you know, me or somebody. And it's like, meditate. No, you know, be yourself. So subjective. Life is this moment of encounter. This is how to befriend yourself and your experience. Because befriend your world. This is your world. Now we can talk about taking this out and being loving and kind and generous and all the paramis at work and at home. We can talk about how spiritual life is not just in church on Sunday or in the synagogue on Saturday or the mosque on Monday. There's six and three quarters other days of the week to consider. That is the mindful life, of course, integrating spirituality into every moment of daily life and bringing compassion into action wherever you are, of course. But I'm trying to get to something more sharp and clear and not talked about so much. Befriending yourself, every moment of experience, that's, quote, you. That's it, and that's your world. And being friendly and open and appreciative and cultivating a positive attitude, open mind to that. Whether it's a pleasure or a pain, whether it's a pleasant sound or a grinding uh, lawnmower, sound. Oh, nice. You know, you're meditating. Oh, nice bird song. Ugh. Why don't they mow the lawn later when we're not meditating? Pushing and pulling. Attraction, attachment, and aversion. How we go through life, exhausting ourselves, squandering our pure energy. Always maintain positive, open mind. That's how we befriend ourselves in the world. In meditation, welcoming, appreciating, Wow, wonderment. Whatever thoughts, feelings, perceptions, memories, arisings in the field of consciousness. That is how to befriend ourselves, our karma, and our world. Someone once asked a wise Japanese Zen master, is the enlightened one or is the master beyond karma, free of karma, has no karma, has good karma, or what? Anybody remember what he said? Does the enlightened one have no karma, free of karma, beyond karma, have good karma, or what? So there's one Zen story that a master named Takujo said, the master has no karma. That's very Zen-like. And the story goes, for that, he was reborn as a fox. <laughs> In other words, he failed. He got left back a few grades and had to come back again. That was a master. No karma. Okay, so that's not the right answer. At least then, I don't know about now. Does the master have good, only good karma, or no karma, or free of karma, conditioning karma? The master is one with karma. There really is no separation. There are no enlightened beings, only enlightened activities. If you think about Buddhism, the doctrine of no self, anatta, and so on. Anishinata, emptiness, you can understand that. So the reason why I mention this is we can undo this tangled web, spider web, that we the spider record in by getting so present in the moment for each moment that that's all there is and not tying all these 
moments like these beads tying them together with crazy blue of conceptual imputation, overlaying reality, making it into a constellation that we interpret as this or that, and hanging ourselves. We can't get hung by a bead or 108 beads without the string, the crazy glue of our self-story. Selfing, I call it. That's what we're usually doing. Selfing. Stringing these moments together of naked experience into our self-story, our history. Selfing. Any questions, please? I could talk a lot more about that. I have a whole folder here. I just uh, gave a week on it on this in Southern California, including some things about metta. For example, is anybody familiar with the metta practice of being in the center of the circle, like of your sangha mates and the sangha around and them rating a metta to you, but you're also in the circle, not just in the center? That's one way to practice metta, radiating and reabsorbing it. Anybody familiar with that? It's a great way to practice metta and also to loosen your identification with yourself is limited. Questions? Anybody? Yes, ma'am. Could you speak up, please, so everybody can participate? Thank you. Of course. That's what we ever think of. Yes. Yes, of course. Um, are you a mother? No. No, I can't talk to you. <laughs> I don't know. Let's imagine, just for argument's sake, that you have somebody you care about. Let's hope. I'm sure you do. You look like a nice um, lady. Do you wish them happiness and you know freedom from danger and harm and fear, or do you wish them to have, you know, as as many knocks as they can, you know, with the theory that what doesn't kill them makes them stronger? And oops, they might get killed, but mostly they won't, so it'll be good for them. And just in general, if you see my drift. In general, I wish them to yeah. Right. Well, the highest good is an ab is a little abstract. It's hard to know what Buddha's will is. So in general, you know, we try to help rather than harm and, you know, and so on. That's, that's the thing. But um, to go a little deeper, Dharma is really not about other people. There are no other people. Loving kindness and compassion is not about other people. We're cultivating loving kindness and compassion in our heart. It's not about whether it's good for you to be helped by me or not. Maybe you need to, I don't know, have a few more miserable incarnations until you realize that pleasure and pain are the same. But still, if I see you writhing around on the floor not being able to breathe, um, I guess mostly always I'm going to like try to help you breathe and you know stop struggling and hurting so much. I mean, that's just sane. If the Dharma's making you more insane, I think you should get into some other game. So don't overthink this. This is not about other people. Don't 
what you're thinking about is secondary and tertiary to the real issue. The issue of selfishness, of what about me, of jealousy and covetousness and greed. That's what we're talking about. How we can be more letting go and generous and sharing. Not about whether it's good for the others. Okay? That's the secret. This question takes many forms. What if I realize how good meditation or whatever is good for me and my husband doesn't like, you know? How can I get him to do it? Well, whatever. I always say the same thing. You know, one in the family is enough. <laughs> Let him be. Maybe he doesn't need it. He's already a Buddha or whatever. Maybe fishing is the American man's meditation. I don't know. It's not about other people. Although we talk a lot about all beings because we're trying to defocus on the ego and the self. Okay, I hope that's helpful. Moreover, just speaking rationally, more like normally, it's so hard to know what's good for other people or not. That's why I ask you if you have kids. If you're in a real guardianship situation, you have to decide and make interventions and do all kinds of things that you don't and shouldn't normally do with peers and equals. You know what I'm saying? Now, one of the four, are you familiar with the four Brahma Viharas that I mentioned? The loving kindness, compassion, the four, whatever you call them, four boundless. Yeah, right, we all know about Maitri and Metta. So, but Upeksha, equanimity. One of the great slogans, one of the verses, the shlokas that we repeat to get more equanimity. I don't know what you do in this, you know, song exactly, but this is from the scriptures, is you say to yourself, and you think it, and you reflect on this, everyone has their own karma, or everybody makes their own karma. I am not, their happiness and unhappiness, you know, I am not responsible for. So it doesn't mean you don't try to help. And if you have kids, you are more responsible than the average bear. You know, if you're in a guardianship relationship, but in general, you know, you're responsible for driving your car and them for theirs. If you pay too much attention to the other cars on the road, it actually becomes unsafe. Pay attention to your car and your lane and your, the traffic signals and, that are communicating to you. And keep, you know, a little eye on what's going on around, but not too much. You with me? And we, some of us have our ball too much in the other's court all the time. Some people call it codependence. Well, whatever. So it's really hard to know what is good for other people, especially if you start to rationalize, oh, let them suffer. You know, There was a lot of this at the Buddha's time, and he, he broke the caste system. He taught karma as had been taught before, conditioning and from one life to the next, and what goes around comes around. You, know? you reap what you sow. That's the karma doctrine, cause and effect, not accident. But the Hindus said, there's this caste system, and the untouchables are born this way because of their karma, so there's no need to try to help them. And the, the poorest people are born that way, and the, 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 the oligarchs, the, the high people, are born that way, and they don't need to give help the lower people. The lower people have a better life next time. You, you're familiar with this problem? Buddha broke that idea. He said we could help everybody. There's no need for them to stay like that even in this life. They could be reborn into a better life in this life. Why wait? He didn't say, yes, those poor untouchables are expiating their sins, so in the next life they can be a Brahmin. No, he said, I got enlightened for your sins, 
You could be a Brahmin now. Come and live on our side of the track where we have no caste system and no untouchables. You see? So it's very tricky to rationalize it. So, oh, well, those poor countries, it's their karma anyway, but they, maybe later they'll, you know, they'll learn from it, which is basically a question, just a macro level. Just like you, if the kid next door is running in the street, you run out and you grab him or her. You don't just say, I guess he has to learn about traffic. He didn't learn yet. What doesn't kill him will make him stronger. <laughs> the bone is strongest where it's been broken and healed. You know, you hear these things. But you don't wish that on people. So I hope that's helpful. Questions, please. Yes, sir. Well, I don't know, we'd have to define terms. Um, what do you mean by true self? Like, in what context are you referring? Like, I guess, because um, a lot of times I hear, like, uh, our ego is driving our behavior, but our real self, the true self, is um, kind of uh, lifeless. I see, right. Like the higher self or the witness or, yeah. The small self with a capital S, egocentric self, and big self with a capital. Small self with a small S, and big self with a big S. Yeah, that's that's not a bad way of talking. That's not the Buddhist language, but you know, Buddhists talk about like mind with a small. Zen Buddhists talk about mind with a small M and Buddha mind with a big M. So it almost sounds like the same thing. I think what we're talking about really is like. The you, I don't know your name or your story, but I'll just make it up. You know, I just see a face there with a nice smile, but I heard some nice things from you, you know, but I see it. So there's a guy who, like, has an ego and also an id and a super ego, you know, just talking English here. We all went to school. But, you know, you're, like all of us, somewhat self-centered. Oh, the wife is nodding. Yeah, we know. <laughs> Big egotistical a-hole. But, you know, just like a regular guy like the rest of us, ordinary neurotic, not a psychotic. <laughs> a decent person with any problems. You know, life is not that easy, but, you know, also having a smile and a life, nice friends, people you're with. But, you know, like ego-driven, egocentric self, and also somewhat aware that there's more to you than that. That's the other thing, with or without a name. So in Buddhism, we usually call, you know, some schools of Buddhism, we call that like your Buddha nature, not just your ego. Unborn and undying Buddha nature, before you were born and after you died. So you can be in touch with that now, and that's like, in Hinduism, they call it Vedanta, the Supreme Self, with a capital S. Who you really are that's untouched by the daring do of your little egocentric self with its virtue and vice and its good karma and bad karma. Is that helpful to you? Like your best self and then your ordinary bent out of shape, egotistical, fear-based, whatever you are, self. <laughs> like me, it's very clear. You see, it's easy for me because I grew up being Jeffrey Miller, a real, you know, sports jock on Long Island, Jewish on my parents' side, obnoxious as the day is long, <laughs> motor mouth, motor mind, behind the wheel of the car all the time. 
And then there's Lama Suridas, the blissful Buddha, happy-go-lucky. So that's my small self, my big self. It's easy to sort out once you have the two jerseys and hats, you know, which team is, is playing right then. But those are very closely related, like the two sides of the hands, but even closer. Like the bubble in the sea, the small self and the big self. So you don't really have to get rid of your ego, you see through it, and then you don't have to pop the bubble to return to the sea. You with me, God boy? Are you a good boy, a bad boy, or a God boy? Do we have to get rid of our ego, pop the bubble, to come back to oneness, or is the bubble not part of the sea, and it's nothing but the sea, and it's sea through and through? So when you see through yourself, when you gain the insight of prajna wisdom, you realize the true nature or selfless nature, unconditioned nature, then you don't have to, you, you wear the ego more lightly. The ego has its function. It's the ego that tells you where your house is, where your car's parked. You don't just go out of here and like look for a car. <laughs> and then you get in the car and just see wherever it goes. Any garage it likes, you go. Like my father used to say, Daddy, Daddy, where are we going? He never told the lie. He said, wherever the car takes us, kids. <laughs> so you see where I'm coming from. I hope that's helpful. If you want to read about this, there's a lot you can read about. I don't know what kind of things you like to read or study. Who Am I by Ramana Maharshi. Awakening the Buddha Within by Surya Das. That's supposed to be good. <laughs> I haven't read it in a long time. I can't remember anything's in there. I think there's Eightfold Path in there, but I hope it's the right eight. My memory's very weak. I'm sure if the Buddha was alive today, hey, the Buddha is, he would, he would have some extra innings to the Eightfold Path. Don't you think? Like right or good humor? Like wise relationships? Like healthy living? Just guessing. Yes, in the back row there. Of life? I don't know, but the Dalai Lama says to be happy and to make other people happy. I'll pass the buck to him. <laughs> I have a whole chapter on that question in my book, The Big Questions, Finding Your Own Answers to Life's Essential Mysteries. I took up 14 questions like that. I asked a lot of people what their big question was, and then I took up 14 of them like, you know, is there a God, and if so, what kind? What happens, if anything, after we die? What is love, and how can we, what is happiness, and how can we get some? How do I balance giving and taking care of others with taking care of myself? Things like that. What is the meaning of life, is one, purpose of life is one of them. There's a lot of different answers. What do you think? What's the purpose of your life? Since we're alone here, let's get personal. <laughs> What's the purpose of your life? What? <laughs> That's, no. Somebody else might say, the purpose of my life is to be asking you this right now. This is the culmination of my entire, you know, of everything that's gone before. That would be closer to the truth. Because if you really get down to it, I don't know. You know, I'm just, just freestyling here. And the purpose of life is not a part of Buddha's um, uh, mission. It may be one of the questions he didn't answer. I can't remember. 
Some Buddhist teachers have said it's, the purpose of life is to become enlightened or to be free from suffering and confusion. But closer to the point, I think, that this is the purpose of life, this moment, and living it fully, being one with it. That's the culmination of everything that we've done until now. What if we turned our attention back and brought it home to this moment and we're not always thinking about it somewhere else? In heaven after we die or after many lifetimes getting to enlightenment or it's grass is greener on the other side somewhere. If we brought our attention home, you might find out that this is it. But what is this? We don't know that. We're so obscured. Let's try to clarify the thing. That's why we meditate and do various purification and transformation practices. The first step on the Eightfold Path is clear vision. Seeing it as it is, not as it ain't. That will change everything, I guarantee you. So I hope that's helpful. Yes, the book is called The Big Questions <laughs> by Lama Suridas. You can get it in bookstores or, I hate to say this, Amazon. And that's one of the 14 questions. I'm sure you all remember that there were, historically, Buddha didn't, there were 14 questions the Buddha didn't answer. Like, where did the world all come from? What happens to the enlightened one after he dies? So I being, you know, kind of a wise guy, I took up 14 questions that seemed hard to deal with today very foolishly and tentatively. But I asked a lot of people their ideas and did some research. It's not just my blah, blah. Some of it is what Buddhism thinks. Some of it is what other sages and saints throughout history have said. Like the Dalai Lama has said many times when asked, the purpose of life is happiness and to make others happy. But that's just his answer, one answer. And what does happy mean? Is happy superficial? Or does happy reach all the way down to deeper? Now, happiness like tip of the iceberg, I think, of satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment, great peace, nirvanic peace. Did I see a hand over here? Yes. Right. Let me let me explain you, as my nephew says. <laughs> I'll explain you. What I was talking about is about meditation and inquiry practice. From that point of view, there are no others. From the point of view of Buddhism, there are others. It's called Sangha. In most religions, excuse me, the ultimate value is God. Yes? In Buddhism, there's no God. But there is a higher power. It's called the Triple Gem, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. The teacher, not me, the enlightened teacher or enlightenment itself is the ultimate refuge or teacher. The Dharma, the enlightening teachings, the path and practice. And the Sangha, the spiritual community of kindred spirits that help you on the way. Really the elder spirits, but it means community. And those are considered equal. Buddha is not more important than Dharma or Sangha. Isn't that interesting? So it's fully one-third. In fact, it's an entire refuge of itself. Some people are just about Sangha practice, not about 
Buddha practice like solitary enlightenment meditation. Not about Dharma practice and study. About Sangha practice, about community and service and so on. So don't take anything I say as absolute. You've got to take everything you hear, here and everywhere, ever, with a grain of salt. And Buddhist community is very important and beautiful and worldwide and ongoing. And we think of it as the visible and invisible, like the lineage and all those who came before are with us. I don't mean like ghosts, but, you know, beyond times, like our parents or our grandparents are with us, even though they might be passed on. Yes, last question, because it's 9 o'clock. Yes, sir? Because we're talking about the three jewels, we're talking about Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Enlightened teacher, not, you know, I'm not saying you take refuge in me and in what I say and in these people. That's too limited in understanding of this, the high, real higher power is not just Buddha, the person, but it's enlightenment itself that we rely on or take refuge in. The truth is the Buddha refuge. Prajna, wisdom. And the Dharma refuge is, is um, knowing the truth, realizing the truth, or realizing it, enlightenment. And the Sangha refuge is embodying and living it. It's not just a bunch of people either here or a bunch of people with, you know, with the right color robes. It's not just the monastics, that's the outer Sangha. The real refuge is in, in true living, in authenticity, in embodying the Dharma. So that's why I said not me. Of course, it's supposed to include your present teacher, but this is just a, a role, you know. I'm here for two hours, and when we go out of here, you know, I'm back. Uh, I'll see you next door at Monday night, you know, football. I'm just Jeff the jock watcher, you know, the Red Sox fan. You don't want to take refuge in that guy. <laughs> you might buy him a drink, you know, but that's all. Don't give him your car keys. <laughs> Thank you all. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.